The sirens squealed shortly after 2 a.m. on Wednesday, February 25, 1942. People in the Los Angeles area jumped out of bed, groping around in the dark for their clothes and shoes. Soldiers scrambled out of their barracks. Civil defenders grabbed their helmets and ran out of their houses. Calls from concerned citizens overwhelmed telephone operators. Despite orders not to, people peered out their living room windows. At their posts, air raid wardens scanned the night sky through their binoculars. They searched for enemy planes. They whispered to each other, each wondering if the other person could see anything. The reply was the same throughout the city, no. Behind anti-aircraft guns scattered around LA, young men nervously gripped their weapon handles. Ever since the bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, they'd been anxious to do their part for the war effort. They just needed to wait for the target to come into range. Out of the blue, someone yelled that they could see planes in the sky. Excitement and fear rippled through the defenders of Los Angeles. Spotlights lit up the night, scanning for the enemy. Something silver came into view, and that was all it took. The anti-aircraft guns fired. The Battle of Los Angeles had begun. But in the days after the raid, those same gung-ho defenders were left with questions. The city wasn't bombed. No damaged planes were found. No one could produce a shred of evidence of the enemy attack. So locals wondered what exactly they'd fired at. Was it enemy planes, weather balloons, or UFOs? Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. This is our first episode on the Battle of Los Angeles. In the early morning hours of February 25th, 1942, over 1,400 shells were fired into the night sky. But nobody knows what the military was shooting at. In this episode, we'll cover the events that led up to the Battle of Los Angeles, the attack on Pearl Harbor, and a February 24, 1942 bombing in Santa Barbara. We'll explore the atmosphere of paranoia and patriotism that set the stage for the inexplicable firefight. Next episode, in part two, we'll examine the investigations that launched the day after the battle and the War Department's official explanation for the attack. We'll also discuss three theories of what triggered the air raid. Mass hysteria, weather balloons, or an extraterrestrial invasion. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. 
They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. The so-called Battle of Los Angeles occurred during a period of paranoia and heightened wartime tensions. But to understand Americans' mindsets on February 25th, 1942, we have to turn back the clock to the days before the United States entered World War II. In early December 1941, officials in Washington, D.C. were anxious. They were mired in negotiations with Japanese delegates. Arbitrations regarding Japan's expansion through the South Pacific and the United States' embargo on oil were exceedingly slow. Some army personnel believed Japan was stalling. They didn't want to work out a deal because they were about to declare war on the United States. Military codebreakers even intercepted messages from Japanese envoys and deciphered them on December 6th. The communications suggested that an attack was imminent and it was going to happen somewhere in the Pacific. Military intelligence sent a telegram to every Pacific naval base to warn them. When the message arrived at the Western Union office in Honolulu, the clerk immediately noted that it was important. It was addressed to the naval base and might have urgent information about the war overseas. He dispatched his best bike messenger to deliver it. As the boy made his way through town, he passed people on their way to church and saw groups of children playing in the park. While it was the perfect day to be outside, he had to focus. He had no idea what the message said, but he knew it was pressing. As he pedaled faster, he heard a low droning noise from above. The rumble grew louder. The bike messenger looked up and saw over a hundred Japanese fighter planes. The shooting began immediately. Bombs fell around the messenger. He jumped off his bike and dove into a nearby ditch as loose bits of gravel rained down on him. He huddled against the ground, praying that he wouldn't be hit. Finally, after several long minutes, the blast stopped. He peered out over the lip of the ditch. 183 Japanese planes crisscrossed the skies above Pearl Harbor. They dropped bombs on anchored warships. Bullets strafed the ground, killing men as they ran for cover. Air raid sirens blared across the island while battleships sounded the alarm. Sailors grabbed vests and helmets before heading to their assigned posts. They briefly gawked at the silver planes dropping bombs all around them, then jumped behind anti-aircraft guns to return fire. An urgent message was sent out to all naval ships. Air raid on Pearl Harbor. This is no drill. In the harbor, six ships were moored together. The USS Maryland, Oklahoma, Tennessee, West Virginia, Nevada, and Arizona. The Japanese planes rained torpedoes and armor-piercing bombs onto their decks. One of those bombs hit the Arizona's forward magazine, where most of its ammunition was stored. 
it triggered a massive explosion that was heard all over the island. Badly damaged, the Arizona sank, taking much of her crew down to a watery grave. Meanwhile, the Maryland and the Tennessee fired their guns at enemy aircraft, downing several. But they couldn't leave the harbor. They were boxed in by the Arizona's wreckage. They were sitting ducks. The Nevada moored in front of the Arizona was the only battleship to leave the harbor during the attack. But as she headed for open seas, more torpedoes rained down on her decks. As the Nevada started to sink, her captain and crew intentionally ran aground so they wouldn't further block the harbor entrance. Meanwhile, another wave of enemy bombers struck the Pearl Harbor base. Airfields, hangars, and numerous aircraft were destroyed. The attack lasted 75 minutes. Finally, the Japanese planes soared away and base personnel began to assess the damage. During the solemn cleanup, the bike messenger finally arrived with the urgent message. He handed it to an officer and left. The officer could only shake his head when he opened up the telegram. It warned of an imminent attack. All in all, four battleships were sunk and 169 planes destroyed. Casualties numbered over 2,000. The majority came from the USS Arizona, which lost 1,177 sailors. With the attackers long gone, the U.S. government couldn't do anything about the raid. At least, not right away. First, they had to tell the American people what had happened. On December 8, 1941, President Franklin Roosevelt delivered one of the most famous speeches in history. Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. He called for a declaration of war against Japan, and less than an hour later, Congress granted his request. For the remainder of World War II, the attack on Pearl Harbor was used as a rallying cry for recruitment and other wartime efforts. Enlistments skyrocketed. Young men were eager to serve their country in memory of those who died in Hawaii. While recruitment numbers rose, Americans watched the skies for any signs of Japanese activity. Patrols spotted several Japanese submarines off of the Pacific coast in the days and weeks after Pearl Harbor. On December 18, 1941, a Japanese sub attacked the SS Samoa, an old freighter almost 300 miles north of San Francisco. The captain managed to steer the Samoa to shallow waters off of the coast, and the submarine didn't pursue them. The American crew was shaken up, but unharmed. Two days later, on December 20th, 1941, Another Japanese submarine fired on the SS Emidio off the Northern California coast. The Emidio was a civilian oil tanker. Her captain was terrified. He assumed the attack was just a horrible misunderstanding. He wasn't a part of any military operation, so he sent out a distress signal and waved a white flag to surrender. 
But the gesture was in vain. The enemy continued shooting. The Emidio fled toward the shore. But before they could escape, the submarine fired a torpedo. It struck, and the entire ship shook. The captain stumbled across the bridge. He was surprised that they hadn't exploded upon impact. While his crew was still alive, the Emidio was in rough shape. The captain ordered the crew to abandon ship and get to the lifeboats. The sub didn't chase them down. They'd already made their point. After receiving the SOS from the Emidio, the U.S. Air Force assembled a squadron of planes to retaliate. But as they flew out over the ocean, they saw nothing. The sub had disappeared. The attack made headlines across the country. And in the next few weeks, more U.S. ships were targeted along the West Coast. Anxiety and paranoia swept the United States. An invisible enemy lurked in the Pacific Ocean, and it was bold, aggressive. Everyone feared that another full-scale attack was coming, this time in their own backyards. Coming up, a strike on an oil refinery in Santa Barbara leads to the Battle of Los Angeles. Now, back to our story. The December 7, 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor brought the United States into World War II. It inspired people to volunteer for various civil service positions. Private citizens joined the Civil Defense Corps, a civilian equivalent of the military. They learned to fight fires and respond to chemical attacks. Civil Air Patrol, which corresponded to the Air Force, took to the skies. Thousands volunteered to be air wardens. Binoculars in hand, patriots stared at the sky, looking for enemy planes. Lieutenant General John L. DeWitt of Western Defense Command imposed blackout restrictions all across the West Coast. Everyone had to turn off their lights and appliances and place black curtains over their windows whenever they were ordered to. Failure to follow the restrictions was seen as a lack of patriotism, and anyone who wasn't patriotic enough was shunned. But Japanese Americans had it worse than anyone else. They'd lived in the United States for years and had proven their loyalty to their adopted country. Nonetheless, suspicious neighbors and former friends now scrutinized their every move. The distrust stemmed from racial prejudice. Although there was no evidence of domestic Japanese-American terrorism, many Americans branded all people of Japanese descent as enemies of the United States. They were shunned, and mobs attacked their businesses. Meanwhile, government officials hastily erected internment camps in remote parts of California, Oregon, and Washington. Mere months after the attack on Pearl Harbor, Navy officers pulled Japanese civilians from their homes and businesses, carting them off to the camps. The detainees weren't charged with any crime. They couldn't plead their case or leave the camps by choice. Officials claimed that they were imprisoned for their own safety, as though the camps were the only way to stop the racist attacks and discrimination. Japanese Americans were brutally victimized in the aftermath of the attack on Pearl Harbor. 
But other American citizens still saw them as the aggressors. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and other officials tried to assure the public that their concerns were unfounded. In January 1942, they released the Roberts Commission Report, an inquiry into the attack on Pearl Harbor. It laid much of the blame on Admiral Kimmel and General Short, who were utterly unprepared for an attack. Both had been relieved of command and charged with dereliction of duty 10 days after the bombings. Beyond a reference to spying in the Japanese consulate, the report made no specific reference to Japanese Americans. Nevertheless, the public used the report as a rallying cry. They said something must be done about their alleged enemies. And finally, the Roosevelt administration gave in to public pressure. They signed Executive Order 9066 on February 19, 1942. It authorized the military to detain anyone, regardless of race or nationality, who they believed was a threat to national security. With Executive Order 9066, the evacuation of Japanese Americans began in earnest. Many officials knew that Japanese American civilians weren't a real threat, but they capitulated to public pressure anyway. 117,000 people were forced out of their homes. 17,000 of them were children under 10. The camps were in remote parts of the country and sometimes on Native American reservations. When local tribes pushed back, military officials refused to listen. They weren't interested in justice. Life in the camps was brutal. Detainees lived in massive barracks with no running water or privacy. Their every move was watched. The camps were surrounded with barbed wire, and armed guards watched the gates. Occasionally, wardens shot prisoners who tried to escape. Meanwhile, commanders at Southern California's Fort MacArthur ignored the plight of their Japanese-American citizens. They were worried about a very real threat. They realized that Los Angeles would be a prime target for the Japanese military. L.A. was built atop massive oil fields, and its port was one of the largest in the United States. A successful attack could severely cripple the American economy and the war effort. To protect the city, officials encouraged Angelinos to man anti-aircraft guns day and night. A coded alert system told residents when to take cover. Radio announcers declared code yellow when unidentified aircraft approached the coast. Blue meant presumed enemy aircraft were approaching. Red meant an attack was imminent. Citizens had to black out their homes and maintain radio silence. Green meant open fire. Parents taught their children what each one meant. They identified safe hiding places, and some even built bomb shelters in their backyards just to be safe. But President Roosevelt didn't want the American people to panic. In the midst of all the preparations, he gave one of his radio fireside chats on February 23, 1942. Encouraging his audience to look at a world map, Roosevelt explained how the war was being fought on different fronts. 
He talked of opposing the enemy wherever they were found. As Roosevelt spoke, Lawrence Wheeler served dinner. He owned a small roadside cafe in the heart of the Elwood oil field in Santa Monica, California. At 7.15 p.m. during the height of the dinner rush, Wheeler heard a loud boom, then another one. He looked around in fear and astonishment, but a couple of soldier customers assured him it was just target practice. They weren't bothered by the noise. Wheeler trusted them, but he still wanted to see for himself. So as soon as he had a few free moments, he stepped outside. As Wheeler walked out, he heard a whistling sound as something flew past him a few feet overhead. Wheeler spun around in time to see an explosion on the canyon wall behind his business. He was under attack. Wheeler ran away from the restaurant toward a patch of ground where he'd be sheltered, but he'd also have a clear view of the ocean. In the water, clear as day, Wheeler saw a large submarine. It fired toward the shore. Flashes of light blinded Wheeler as more shells rained down on the Elwood oil field. He realized that the sub was targeting the main plant a quarter mile from the beach. If one of the bombs hit, the whole five-mile-long field would go up in flames. The sub could cripple the American supply line. A panicked Wheeler ran back to the cafe and picked up his phone. He needed to report what he'd seen. After a slew of emergency calls like Wheeler's, the Santa Barbara Police Department contacted the oil refinery. They demanded to know what was going on. The refinery's operator replied, I don't know, I'm too busy dodging shells. 20 minutes after the assault began, Navy planes soared over the bay. They dropped depth charges, explosives that detonated underwater, but the sub managed to slip away in the darkness. Luckily, it hadn't hit any crucial equipment, just an oil derrick and a pump house. The damage amounted to a few thousand dollars, and operations were able to continue uninterrupted. If the attackers had intended to do serious physical damage, they did a poor job of it. Wheeler explained their marksmanship was rotten. But the psychological attack was more cutting. Everyone was already on edge, but now, Californians' nerves were frayed. Newspapers reminded people that this was the first attack on the continental United States since World War I. Civilians were baffled at how the submarine had gotten so close without being spotted. Some in the government believed that this was part of a coordinated attack with Germany, who'd bombed refineries around Aruba at the same time. One thing was certain. If the attacker's ultimate goal was to spread fear among the American people, it worked. And it set the stage for one of the strangest conflicts in all of World War II. Just one day after the attack on Elwood Oilfield, the Battle of Los Angeles began. Coming up, the Great Los Angeles Raid. Now, back to our story. The bombing at the Elwood oil field near Santa Barbara on February 23, 1942, put people on edge. They were scared, 
angry and demanded answers. The day after the attack, naval intelligence received an alert from one of their operatives. The informant said the Japanese would strike again within the next 10 hours, but they didn't have any more details about where they'd attack. The entire West Coast went on alert, and around 7.20 p.m. on February 24, 1942, air raid sirens sounded in Los Angeles. Someone had spotted flashing lights near the factories that constructed war materials. But three hours later, the alert was lifted. Nothing had happened, and nobody else had reported anything suspicious. It was a false alarm. Everyone went to bed. Around 11 p.m., another blip appeared on the Coast Guard radar screen. But they were hesitant to send out another alert. Instead, they contacted air traffic control, who informed them that there weren't any incoming flights scheduled that night. Whatever the radar had detected, it wasn't supposed to be there. But just as suddenly as they'd appeared, the mysterious blips vanished from the screen. Everyone visibly relaxed. Once again, they wrote it off as a false alarm. But something was bearing down on the West Coast. Just before 2 a.m., the Coast Guard picked up a signal from over the Pacific Ocean. It appeared to be headed inland, specifically toward Los Angeles. But they still didn't want to sound the alarm quite yet. They didn't know what they detected and didn't want to cause a needless panic. So they kept watch and waited for more information. Fifteen minutes later, two other locations also reported unexplained radar readings. The blips were officially identified as unidentified aircraft. A yellow alert was issued for the city, but the Coast Guard still didn't know if the planes were friends or foes. At 2.23 a.m., they escalated the alert to blue, which meant the incoming aircraft were presumed to be the enemy. Three minutes later, still unable to identify the blips, they went to red alert. Lights went out from Los Angeles all the way south to the Mexican border. Radio hosts cut their broadcasts. Sirens blared. Air wardens, awaked by the shrill sound, scrambled out of bed, grabbed their helmets, and rushed out their doors. Despite the danger, their families stood on front porches in their nightclothes. They peered up at the sky, hoping to get a glimpse at an enemy plane. Others kept an eye on the coastline, expecting to see Japanese soldiers landing on the beach. Phone calls from concerned citizens flooded the switchboards. People swore they saw enemy planes in the air, but they hadn't attacked yet. Police officers and civilian defense members patrolled the streets, making sure blackout restrictions were being followed. It only took five minutes for the city to mobilize. By 2.30 a.m., anti-aircraft and searchlight crews were manned and ready. Nervous soldiers and civilians peered into the inky black darkness wondering where the attack would begin. Spotlight beams cut through the night, slowly sweeping back and forth. Although the blip still showed up on the radar, the men saw nothing in the sky. Still, they watched and waited, 
the attack would begin any second. Almost 30 minutes after Los Angeles went on red alert, San Diego did the same. Then the shooting began. An anti-aircraft station in Santa Monica, a coastal city 15 miles from downtown Los Angeles, declared that they saw planes above. They fired. Meanwhile, searchlights frantically swept back and forth trying to locate a target. Some well-intentioned citizens who'd seized their own rifles shot blindly into the air. They couldn't see the enemy craft, but they hoped they'd get lucky and hit something. Since radio broadcasts had stopped, the public had no way of knowing what exactly was going on. All they could go by was the constant rat-a-tat-tat of gunfire. Speculation ran wild. Actor Buck Henry said, we imagined the hills of Hollywood on fire. We imagined hand-to-hand combat on Rodeo Drive. Excitement turned to fear as people cowered in their homes or bomb shelters. Parents tried to reassure their children as they wiped away their own tears. Dogs growled and barked at the noise overhead. At one point, all the spotlights focused on one spot in the sky, creating a large circle of white light in the darkness. Many witnesses swore they saw an airplane or a zeppelin. The Americans fired everything they had, but the enemy aircraft seemed to dodge everything thrown in its direction. Nobody managed to hit the invaders. But all the air and shots had to go somewhere. Spent ammunition rained down on Los Angeles. A woman and her niece narrowly escaped a piece of shrapnel that tore through their bedroom window and struck their bed. An unexploded shell landed on the sidewalk in front of the Bank of America, shattering the front window. A man standing nearby received an eight-inch laceration in his head. Another shell tore through a doctor's home landing in his office. When it exploded, it destroyed two rooms but didn't injure anyone. But all of these accidents and near misses were due to American ammunition. There are no reports of enemy fire. Nevertheless, the frightened defenders of Los Angeles kept on shooting. The smoke from the guns and missiles clouded the sky. It was hard to see anything that wasn't illuminated by a searchlight. But eventually, the gunfire slowed down. At 4.14 a.m., just over an hour after the battle began, military officials called for a ceasefire. But for three more hours, soldiers kept their eyes on the radar and the sky, looking for more enemy planes. Others watched the beach, while civilians in bomb shelters and homes fell into a fitful sleep. At 7.21 a.m., more than five hours after the red alert was first issued, authorities gave the all clear. The weary defenders congratulated each other on a job well done, then assessed the damage. Reports said a plane went down in the middle of Hollywood, but the police and military never located the remains. Nothing was ever found in the city or on the beach or in the ocean. Five died in the Battle of Los Angeles, two from heart attacks, three in car accidents, but nobody was shot. 
and nobody knew for sure what had flown over L.A. the night before. Reporters swarmed the city searching for answers. One newspaper photographer came across a street that had been blocked off by police. A posted sign read, Unexploded Bomb. The photographer watched as Sergeant C.M. Weathers removed a live explosive from a hole in the ground. The photographer snapped a picture of the munition. No one could tell if it was leftover shrapnel or a bomb from a Japanese plane. The photographer asked Sergeant Weathers to dust it off so he could snap a better picture. Weathers quipped, Would you like us to put a little sandpaper on it and blow us all to hell? The photographer didn't ask any more questions after that. But Weathers eventually retrieved the explosive and determined that it was an anti-aircraft shell. It had been fired by L.A.'s defenders. Other reporters chased leads and tried to separate fact from fiction. Newspapers sold out quickly that day and the next. People were eager for information about the air raid. But the journalists didn't have any answers. In fact, their coverage only raised more questions. Rumors flew. Civilians, police officers, and reporters met in diners and parks and bus stops. Over cigarettes and steaming mugs of coffee, they swapped accounts of how they'd survived, how their homes and property were damaged, and, of course, what they'd seen during the attack. And the first-hand accounts didn't add up. Many people thought they saw hundreds of planes in the sky. Although the night had been dark, they'd made out obscure shapes diving over the city. They heard machine gun fire, but it was hard to distinguish from the anti-aircraft guns. Some witnesses swore the attack was less chaotic than that. They said they'd watched as 25 planes in a V formation soared over Los Angeles. Another gentleman who'd been on a streetcar at the time swore he saw an enemy plane shot down. It did a corkscrew roll on its way to the ground, just like he'd seen in the movies. In theory, the military should have cut through the rumor and explained what really happened. But their official reports were vague. They only confirmed that Raider had detected several blips, but no one was sure how many. These reports and accounts made one thing clear. No one knew exactly how many planes had flown over Los Angeles that night, or if any had. Then, on February 26, 1942, the Los Angeles Times published a photograph. It showed the moment when all of the searchlights focused on one spot in the empty night sky. The picture shows a spidery figure made of light, its eight spotlight legs stretched across the city. The center is an overexposed orb, and it's impossible to make out any details. A blurry spot floats inside, possibly an airship illuminated by the light. Or maybe it's an irregularity on the film. The photo's quality makes it impossible to say for sure. Later, the photographer admitted that they'd enhanced the picture. They'd used white paint to lighten and widen some of the beams, but that didn't stop the rampant speculation. Reports stated that over 1,400 rounds of ammunition were fired that night. 
surely they'd have hit at least one enemy aircraft. Unless there were no enemy aircraft, something more was going on. Perhaps the Battle of Los Angeles was a natural expression of anxiety and paranoia. Lieutenant General John L. DeWitt, who oversaw West Coast defenses and orchestrated the Japanese-American internments, was obsessed with the possibility of an attack on civilian cities. Maybe he was so unnerved, he imagined an invasion where none existed. Then he called an alarm and triggered a fake battle. But he wasn't the only person dealing with wartime anxiety. Perhaps thousands of witnesses saw Japanese planes above Los Angeles because they were all sharing a delusion in an episode of mass hysteria. The Battle of Los Angeles only existed in the fragile psyches of terrified Californians. But then, there's the now infamous picture in the Los Angeles Times. Even after we acknowledge that parts of the picture were edited, it's hard to explain the strange craft in the spotlight. After all, the photographer didn't modify the overexposed center. Perhaps the Battle of Los Angeles was real, and the attackers came from outer space. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back on Thursday with part two, where we'll explore possible causes for the Battle of Los Angeles. For more information on this mysterious event, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Battle of Los Angeles by Charles River extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Unexplained Mysteries, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Stephen Davies, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Teresa Watson, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>